Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, March 17th, marks our 175th program. So today's featured Actus solution, which you can see on your screen there, is the live virtual CDI bootcamp. This bootcamp is our premier training for CDI specialists. It's trusted by hundreds of CDI specialists as the go-to source for CDI education and defines the roles and responsibilities of CDI professionals, best practices for medical record review and compliant physician querying, Cool thing about this class is it's taught live in a convenient virtual setting. So you're on the screen with uh, instructors that are with you live, not recorded, providing you the same personal touch and interaction we provide in the classroom. So check that out today. We, we're going to have one of our instructors, as we always do, uh, the virtual boot camp on with us. We'll introduce uh, just now. So my name is Brian Murphy. I'm the director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists. And I'm your host for today's program, Registered Respiratory Therapist, Risk and Reward. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Don Valdez. Don is a CDI education specialist for us here at ACTUS in Middleton, Massachusetts. She serves as a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps and as a subject matter expert Dawn has a lengthy background that includes more than 20 years experience in the healthcare industry, including ICU nursing, legal nurse consulting, and nurse management. And I want to welcome her back to the program. Welcome, Dawn. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Okay. Next, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. Uh, we're calling him the other Brian, but that's no slight on Brian Simpson. <laughs> uh, Brian is a CDI specialist at Penn Highlands Healthcare in Dubois, Pennsylvania. Uh, he has been a registered respiratory therapist for 28 years, spending a large portion of his career involved in acute care, non-invasive cardiology, pulmonary, and cardiac rehab. By way of background, he received his BS in respiratory care from Indiana University of Pennsylvania and MS in exercise science. He transitioned into CDI after experiencing health care issues involving uh, severe chronic lung disease. I'm just going to say right now off the gate, we're going to get into this in the show. If you're hearing, you know, some noise in the background, that that, that is Brian's um, assistive breathing device. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but prior to CDI, Brian worked as a revenue integrity analyst, upending, uh, excuse me, spending much of his time in denials management. He's also worked in outpatient CDI and a risk adjustment. Prior to his decline in health, was an avid marathoner. Uh, pretty amazing stuff there, which I'm looking forward to getting into on today's show. So, uh, welcome, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Absolutely. All right, let's start with a poll question related to today's topic, as we always do. Um, I'm going to pull that up on the screen, read the poll, and ask you to please select the choice that best pertains to you and your situation. So we ask, how much importance do you place uh, in the background of a given CDI specialist? Would you say quite a bit, meaning you prefer a certain clinical or coding background in your CDI professionals? Uh, somewhat, it helps in certain types of reviews or roles, perhaps. Would you say very little, 
Um, maybe you're more concerned with the, the person than their credential. Don't know, not applicable or other. I love getting these open-ended responses. So um, if you just want to send those, maybe, you've, or maybe you did click one of the above options, but if you want to send in your comments and thoughts on given background of CDI professionals, love to hear from you. But again, how much importance do you place in the background of your CDI specialists that your organization hires or you work with? Quite a bit, uh, somewhat, very little, don't know, not applicable or other. All right, we've got about 75% of our audience that have voted, so I'm going to go ahead and close this uh, out, and we will come back to the results, in, as we always do, in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, Brian Simpson is today's special guest. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Um, you know, just as I mentioned at the outset of the show, I was reading through your bio, uh, and we've also kind of tipped our hand here with the poll question, but you have a, you have a very non-traditional background uh, as a registered respiratory therapist. And I was just looking back at prior shows to make sure this is an accurate statement, but I believe it is that I, I don't believe I've had a registered uh, res respiratory therapist on the air on the show before. <laughs> we have had some RRTs in the membership. I've seen that credential pop up, but it, it is rare. And certainly it's a first for the podcast. So. Could you talk a little bit about your background, you know, um, and how that led to CDI? And, um, you know, frankly, did it, did it prevent any obstacles to you when, when you first got into CDI? Sure. Um, well, as you said, I've been a registered therapist for a little over 28 years. Um, had a pretty broad background, um, ICU, neonatal ICU, pulmonary function, um, hyperbaric oxygen, um, you know, traditional acute care, critical care, and done um, been an active ACLS instructor through the years. And uh, through that, then I um, worked quite a bit in non-invasive cardiology. And uh, then with my master's in exercise science, it uh, opened some more doors with cardiac and, and pulmonary rehab. Um, I had the pleasure at one point of helping to start um, a couple of new pulmonary rehab programs. So. That's basically where I'm coming from. A little bit non-traditional for RTs and some with the non-invasive cardiology, stress testing, and things like that. But um, you know, it was all that background that gave me a, a broader base of knowledge. Um, you know, and I always like to do my prep before I would go in to see a new patient. I like to know their labs, what their X-ray studies showed, anything like that. Just a lot more than what pertain to the respiratory and, and actually cardiopulmonary system. I mean, obviously we're known for um, lungs and, and what we do with um, the cardiac system as well, but I never liked to be boxed into that and uh, just always tried to learn as much as I could. And um, I just said, I, I worked as a revenue integrity specialist with denials and appeals and reviewing um, payers variances and things looking for mistakes on their end as well and uh, I accepted a position as a transition of care coordinator basically as a COPD and, and CHF educator and navigator and this was around the same time that my marathon running came to an end because of um, my lung disease and I my final two marathons were about 13 days apart and as I crossed the finish line my 
you know, oxygen levels were extremely low and I had taken oxygen with me. Normally I'd been on and off of it for, you know, over the last 20 years. But at this point it was um, in October that year and I put my oxygen on and I've never taken it off. And that's been about five years. Okay. So the, the, the transition into CDI was, uh, it was obvious I couldn't work with patients anymore you know, because I, my oxygen and just my susceptibility to everything. And so I, I was given the opportunity. My, my director at the time in case management knew about my experience with appeals and denials management. And she said, would you like to, you know, try this and, and see part-time? And it, I had a really good um, nurse teaching me along the way. And by the time I was ready, we had a, a staff member retire and I was given the opportunity and I proved my clinical knowledge. And um, that's how I got into CDI. That's wow. Perfect. Yeah, that's an amazing story, actually. And that segues perfectly into what I'm curious about. You know, so you've got a really interesting background. It's very diverse, which I'm very impressed with. And but were there any gaps at all without being, you know, in a different role clinically? It seems like you had a lot of diversity that gave you some opportunities that other people usually don't have but were there you know the knowledge helped obviously but were there any gaps that you needed to learn more about once you got into that cdi role oh definitely um you know i was familiar with it oh, you know the cardiopulmonary obviously and a large part with the endocrine but i really had much more limited knowledge in the gi system and orthopedics um and, and specifically you know certainly procedure coding um so i i really that was kind of like starting back as as a beginner learning more about the gi system specifically that was probably my my hardest thing initially um you know and i had dealt with coding and coding guidelines in my revenue position so that wasn't it was just building from a, a nice base but um just just going more into that and um that's probably the biggest Thing that that I had a weakness with, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. I enjoyed um, learning. I think that that's not uncommon. I, I don't <laughs> care, you know, how long you've been in a clinical environment. You can't know every specialty, you know. So there's always learning curves in CBI. So I can appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Experience. I, I work with great coders, so you know, when I when there was a disagreement, I always got a really good explanation and a coding clinic reference, um, you know, so it was just a really good experience. I, I didn't feel like I was behind in that aspect at all. So it was just a couple of the, the clinical um, niches that I had to focus more on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that a coder would break out a coding clinic reference. Really <laughs> Never happens. <laughs> well, that's, that's importance of teamwork. And, you know, it's true, just to echo what Don said a little bit, that you know, even really experienced nurses, you know, critical care, ICU, sometimes have gaps in certain areas that they need to learn more about. It's, it's very rare you're going to get someone who is an expert in all these fields. It's um, what, what is important. You had that you had that knowledge and you had that um, that. Uh, I don't know, the the you took it upon yourself to look into these patients charts you know you were you were sort of um thoughtful and 
and curious about their conditions, which I, I know is, is a, mm -hmm. a trait that I've heard CDI professionals need and have come to see over the years as well, the curiosity. Um, can you talk just a little bit more about your personal background and your health, Brian? You know, I, I, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, I'm sure listeners are hearing you're currently on oxygen. You are battling a very serious condition. Um, you you have a really inspiring story, frankly. You you've you know you were overweight. I know at one point in your life and really worked hard to to, to battle that, mitigate in, a, in an attempt to mitigate your condition. You've talked about marathoning, which is, is crazy. Even most health healthy people aren't going to do uh, you know uh, marathons thirteen days apart, half marathons. It's uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah. But you know, obviously, this has to impact you know your your life and and even maybe even your work as a CDI. So, could you talk just a little bit more about that with us here? Sure. Um, you know, life. I've had lifelong really severe asthma. Um, I've been prednisone or steroid dependent since I was in my late teens. So, you know, you mentioned about the, the weight issue. That is not kind <laughs> to your weight and had a significant weight gain over the first five or six years and then was able to maintain that. But, you know, as a lot of people, their asthma uh, seems to lessen and you, you know, you seem to outgrow it. But mine was the reverse. It just got more severe. And by the time I had graduated college, I actually could have gone on disability at that point. You know, I, I never would have gone into the workforce. I, I could have um, just directly, um, you know, gone to disability. I, at that point, I had, well, I didn't refer to it as COPD then because I didn't want to face that diagnosis. Mine was just really bad asthma. And over the years, it progressed to stage four, meaning my lung function was below 30%. Uh, and, and lung function, my forced exhaled volume, or my FEV1. And the majority of my life, it was, you know, 26 to 33 percent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned the marathons. They were, all the marathons were done with a lung function of 28 to 32 percent. And there were some really slow ones, but um, I accomplished a few in under five hours, which I, wow. it was probably my thing I'm most proud of. <laughs> Um, you know, to finish a marathon in under five hours with significant lung disease. Sometimes I would take uh, breathing treatments in route while I was running and um, just kept one. I never quit. I never stopped before the finish of one. Had a couple of close calls, but uh, made it. And uh, when, when I turned 40, I was working a lot more in cardiac and pulmonary rehab. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try the, the weight loss thing one more time. And just through diligence and changing um, my eating patterns, I, over the course of nine months, uh, lost about 130 pounds. Wow. Just wow. with hard work and um, <laughs> dedication. And, uh, so then that's when I started running after the weight loss, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of, things were status quo. I, at one point, I had been on disability for about two and a half years in the early 2000s and thought like crazy to get back to work and um, have been back to work since 2003. But um, it wasn't until the mid-2000s when I was, the teens when I was doing the marathons and I was loving my job. I was working in revenue integrity. And um, my pulmonologist had asked me to stop running full marathons. He said, you've proven you can do it. <laughs> Just run halves. <laughs> and I think I ran three more 
worked in my last year. And the, the final two uh, were 13 days apart. And I finished, I'm from Maryland, and I finished the Baltimore Marathon in a ridiculously uh, slow time. Afterwards, I found out I had a completely detached Achilles tendon in my right foot. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, man. Well, so I'm sure that contributed to the extra work on my lungs. Um, yep. So, and, and as I said, that's how it segued in, into the position I have now. And uh, I, so I've been oxygen dependent, just mostly wearing a nasal cannula. And then about a year ago, after the marathon, my lung function I consistently was 28 to 30%, and it has dropped, and now I maintain right at 14 to 15%. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the talks of transplantation uh, certainly have come up several times, and I've gone through testing, and it's just not something I, I want to do. You know, I've had severe lung disease my entire life and I just kind of look at it like as long as I'm still able to work uh, it's not an option that I'm that I'm gonna mm -hmm. pursue well we appreciate you sharing that Brian and um, <laughs> you're a remarkable person and what, what you've accomplished is is uh, you know it's it's beyond words just to the battles you've had and, and how you've been able to, to overcome it and, and how you had that option to to potentially bow out of the workforce, understandably, but you've, you've pressed on and made a great career. And we're glad to have and, you on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a motivational story right there. You should write a book, number one. Yep. And it would be a bestseller. And number two, just saying, I can't even run a marathon in under five hours. I mean, there's no way. So I really am impressed with your tenacity yep. and your perseverance to keep going. And I think that you're a great role model out there for a lot of people, you know, especially over the past year it's been a little difficult and a lot of people are struggling. So I hope that your story gets out there and I'll help you in any way I can with that. But I, I'm really, really curious about one part of your work history that I just, I, I wanna ask you about. And that's involving sure. your risk adjustment piece because outpatient, you know, we're getting to the point to where that's really starting to boom. A lot of people mm -hmm. on the inpatient side don't really make that connection all the time about the HCC capture and what that does. There's not a lot of crossover with that education and how those risk adjustment factors affect the quality scores as well. So can you speak a little bit about how that impacts the, you know, your quality initiatives, the risk adjustment piece for the outpatient side, and what you're looking for in that record that might be out of a, a traditional CDI purview? Sure. Um, you know, I, I had worked in risk adjustment and uh, outpatient CDI. Really, for me, I, I think risk adjustment is outpatient CDI, basically. Uh -huh. um, our, our physician practices, almost all of them are owned by our system. So, it definitely benefits us to have those captured. Um, mm -hmm. It's just it, the impact it has on, on quality and everything. So when I'm doing a chart review, I, you know, of course I look for the obvious, the CCs and MCCs, but I also look for a lot of the overlooked um, HCCs, the ones dealing with depression or um, the diabetes complications, and try to specifically get them linked because it's not as easy a game on the outpatient side as what yeah. we're able to do on the inpatient side. Um, so, you know, it was, wasn't anything really big. I just tried to look into the little things like that, that, um, you know, definitely the, we understand why we want to 
quantify something like CKD3. But when you go from CKD3 in the outpatient setting, it now is an HCC, as where it's not a CC for us to deal with on the inpatient side. So rather than have just a generic CKD, try to present that and get it addressed as CKD3, and that's just one more little um, block in the foundation to add. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great stuff there. Hey, hey. Yeah. I have one quick question. Do you think that the HCC capture from the inpatient side helps with the denials that the outpatient side may see on the profession on the pro fees? Because they, you have more supporting information in that inpatient record oh. to substantiate levels of service. Oh, oh, definitely. You know, a lot of times you don't you don't see the level of support in an outpatient chart because right. the physicians. Okay. It's, it's the patient's known to them. They are not thinking about addressing that level of PKD or the specificity of the heart failure. You know, how many times does a patient come in with a diagnosed systolic heart failure? Not that often. So, you know, mm-hmm. we just try to get it addressed. And, and like you said, we have a lot more of the clinical support then in that chart that substantiates the claim on the outpatient side so it can be referenced um you know in, in that hcc capacity so right. i definitely think that it certainly uh, helps with that to you know add to the whole factor well, thanks for sharing that i think that'll help a lot of people on the inpatient side understand more about how their hccs can be effective and how to work with those yeah. so thanks for sharing i appreciate that sure yeah, we're, we're running short on the time for the interview here, but I, j- I wanted to share just a couple comments we received, Brian, during the show. Um, someone uh, said that I'm also an RRT with similar clinical experience and credentials as Brian. For me, the biggest gap has been learning all the medications since as an RRT, I never gave meds mm-hmm. other than respiratory related ones. I think my clinical experience is invaluable. It makes me a better CDI encoder. So there you go. I don't know if your meds had the same, yeah. you had the same path there or the same experience. Um, and then a couple of really nice comments, Brian, just um, Denise says you're an inspiration. All of us never give up. Thank you for sharing your story. And Kimberly writes, yeah. uh, super inspiring story of perseverance. I agree with Don. He should write a book about his yes. intuitiveness. It would <laughs> inspire him find another way to be productive. So. Maybe someday. (laughs) We do publish a few books in Actus, so if if you ever get to that point, let me know. (laughs) Definitely get support here, so yeah. Let's take a look at our poll question. Again, we asked folks, uh, how much importance do you place in the background of a CDI specialist? So majority said quite a bit, 59%. They prefer a certain clinical or coding background. Uh, 33%, a third said somewhat, helps in certain types of reviews or roles. Uh, 3%, very little, more concerned with the person. Uh, and 5%, don't know, not applicable. Any comments on this, Brian? Anything here surprise you and, and or Dawn as well? Well, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I'm not either. I, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, the vast majority of what we do is clinical and coding, mm-hmm. and there's so much area in the clinical aspect to learn that it does help to have that type of background, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We got a comment to that effect here from someone. I'm just going to pull that, pull that up one last time. That um, uh, Let's see. Yeah. Um, 
There are so many pathways healthcare workers intake. Someone said background matters more than credentials, but but another comment was I would think a clinical base is needed to perform CDI well. I do think that's having that clinical foundation. And, and I will say I, I have seen some really good HIM coding professionals that did not have a clinical background that have made great CDI professionals because they've taken that extra step to to learn the clinical and be in the chart. Um, but certainly having that foundation is critical. But thanks again, Brian, for sharing that uh, story with us. Um, at this point, I'm, I am going to, um, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pop over here quickly for an in the news segment. Let me pull this up here on your screen. Um, again, in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Big story to cover here. We've only got a few minutes, but I, I, I wanted to just let people know about this article. Um, this is uh, an article I saw um, through the listserv I subscribe to. It's from the OIG. This is an article from Fierce Healthcare about a recent report that states hospital stays getting more expensive for Medicare, raising upcoding concerns. We also covered it here uh, on actus.org, and I'm sure we'll have more of it. In fact, I wrote my note about it in CDI strategies for tomorrow. There's a uh, spoiler alert for those waiting on their next edition of CDI strategies. Um, important, important report here, and you can read it in full, and we will share the links to these with you all after the show in the show notes. This is a 20-odd page report from the OIG, far more to cover, and we have time here today. but. You know, in short, um, you know, essentially what Fear Health is reporting that hospitals increase their Medicare billing for the most severe inpatient stays, sparking concerns from the from the OIG that facilities could be improperly charging the federal government. This is a report that looks at severe inpatient stays, so those at the highest level of severity from 2014 through 2019 fiscal years. The OIG found that stays at this higher level are potentially susceptible to inappropriate billing practices, such as upcoding. They, they, they pieced this together because they looked at claims data and they also looked at uh, length of stay, which actually declined slightly from 6.9 days to 6.4 days from 2014 through 2019 for, again, for these uh, highly severe, these high severity levels of billing. Uh, the average length of all stays was largely the same, decreasing by only about 0.1 days. So we had about a half-day <laughs> decline or a decrease in length of stay um, with an increase of about 20% severity levels from 2014 to 2019. So OIG looked at this and said, uh, potential red flag here. We, Houston, we might have a problem. Um, obviously a big deal, uh, possibly indicative of upcoding. What, what, what I found really interesting and what I think some people in the industry that I've seen reporting on this are missing is that the CM, CMS largely disagreed, may, might be too strong, but, but, but didn't come to the same conclusions as the OIGs ba based on their findings. Um, there's a really interesting comment from CMS near the end of this very lengthy report, which again, I recommend reading. It's a great report if you want to learn why work is important, how the OIG does their work. Clinical documentation is mentioned in here as a profession uh, as well. Um, so you will see CMS's comments here at the 
end. I'm doing a lot of scrolling here. I apologize, folks, but uh, it is a long report. There is a text of their comments, and really what I wanted to highlight is, is, um, is this one here from CMS. They write, uh, without conducting targeted medical re record reviews, says CMS, it's unclear whether this trend could be explained by other factors, such as increases in efficiencies of care, advancements in technologies, transition ICD-10-CM, which, as we know, took place in 2015 during this period. Um, CMS mentions that, for example, patterns of care for conditions such as neoplasms, orthopedics, and structural heart disease have recently transformed due to advancements in biomedicine, resulting in improved clinical outcomes. That, that could potentially uh, speak to that slight decrease in length of stay for these severely ill patients. Uh, so CMS did not agree to um, take this next step of advanced um, in-depth chart reviews and also cited the diligent work that it has been doing all along with RAC reviews, prepayment reviews, and follow-up education. So an interesting point-counterpoint from the OIG and CMS that I recommend reading and checking out. Um, just curious, Brian, if you had any thoughts on this, if you had a chance to look at this report, if it raises any red flags for you, or, or if you're also saying, um, you know, we not necessarily um, a panic time for anyone. <laughs> no, I, I don't really see it as a panic time. Just all we can do as CDI is really go back to the, the basis of everything as clinical validation. You know, we want to make those codes supported uh, the advent of ICD-10, you know, like you said, in 2015. So that's really all, you know, I think that's the biggest contribution we could see. Right. Dawn, any thoughts from yourself on this report? You probably have a few, I imagine. Yeah, I do. You know me well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just think that, you know, I have a concern that if the OIG pushes forward, there's no target point. So there's no specific diagnoses other than the CCs or the MCC capture for that severity of illness, which opens it up wide. And, you know, what are we, what are they what would they find? Is, is there going to be a lot of two-day stays for sepsis? I mean, that may be problematic for the industry, but, um, you know, things like that. So we'll just have to wait and see. We also don't know, you know, out of those millions of cases that they're quoting in this article, there's 140 million cases denied by RAC auditors alone per per year. That's a that's a tremendous amount, in my opinion. It's a small percentage of the whole, but it's still a lot of cases. So I would be curious to see how these two organizations are going to, to go in and, and tackle this. So this seems like a really big arena to tackle. Right. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if, about any follow-ups, if any. There has been talk whether the Biden administration will increase the amount of audit activity or not. Potentially, yes, but... Um, more to come, I guess. So just, mm -hmm. I recommend checking out that report. All right, that is going to do it for today's edition of the podcast. Um, we'll see you back here again in two weeks for our next show. We're going further into outpatient CDI. We touched on it a little bit today. But we're actually getting someone to talk from the payer perspective uh, on outpatient. So hope you can join us for that. You can listen to the show recordings anytime on a website or via Google, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We try to make those available by Friday following our live show today. Uh, as always, I'd like to conclude with if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, 
send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. Again, Brian, want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your, your story or your, your inspiration and, and uh, keep us posted and um, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All Thanks, right. Brian. Best to you. Take care, everyone.